When you hear the word peace, what comes to your mind? Or perhaps I should ask, when a random person in Charlotte hears the word peace, what comes to his or her mind? For most people, the idea is the absence of conflict. Absence of conflict in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. If you live in a neighborhood where there have been shootings, just no shooting seems like it would be peace. If you are in a school where there have been many, many fights, no fights in the school seems like that would be peace. If you're in a family where there are often angry outbursts, If that doesn't happen, that can give the appearance of peace. Or internationally, the end of the war in Ukraine, could that be peace? Or the end of the marauding militias in eastern Congo that so many of our Swahili-speaking congregation have had to endure. If that were to end, that would look like peace. Or the end of the violence in, in Tigray and Ethiopia, where actually more people have died than in the war in Ukraine, but we hardly ever hear about it. If that were to end, that would seem like peace for those people. Well, our text today speaks of peace, a longing for peace in Psalm 120, verses 6 and 7, for a believer who is surrounded by opponents of God. And then a picture of peace in Jerusalem, the city of peace, in 122 verses 6 to 9. But the concept of peace is much broader in those Psalms than simply the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word shalom includes not only the absence of conflict, but life-giving, healthy relationships. Relationships with God and with one another. Now, a few of you might remember back three years ago when I was in Psalm 85, I focused specifically on shalom, on peace, but I'll forgive you, I didn't actually remember until I looked at my files that I had focused on shalom in that sermon. But God's plan of redemption aims at creating this type of peace, life-giving, healthy relationships. Indeed, this is what we were created for, to have this type of relationship with God, to have this type of relationship with one another. Consider the promises of the new covenant, the culmination of God's plan of redemption. Jeremiah 31. There are four promises. First, I will write my law on their hearts. So he will change us from the inside out. And then two, the picture of peace. I will be their God They will be my people. 
And he's speaking there not only of, I will be the God of each one of them individually, so there's a healthy relationship between God and each man individually, but they collectively will be my people. Together, they will be one body, one people, all in healthy relationship with God, and thus in healthy relationship with one another. As Peter speaks shortly before the passage that we read this morning, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we will be a people, one people, for his own possession. And he goes on to say, quoting Hosea, once you were not a people, okay, you were a bunch of individuals, Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul says. But now you are the people of God in relationship to him, in relationship to one another. And then the third promise, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And then the fourth promise, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. There's the four promises of the new covenant the culmination of God's great plan of redemption. That is shalom. When we are God's people, he is our God. Perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with one another. He deals with what separated us from him in the past. He forgives our sins. He changes us on the inside, writing us law on their heart, making us know him so that there's no more separation into the future. And so that we might fulfill, we might find what eternal life is as Jesus prays that last night on earth. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Well, in the new covenant, that is fulfilled. They will all know me. So there's this intimacy between God and man, an intimacy among God's people. Indeed, we can think of this culmination of God's plan of redemption as our joining into the peace, the shalom, that was pre-existent in the Trinity amongst God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Think of those relationships within the Trinity. What is that relationship? It wouldn't be very impressive to say, well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they don't fight, right? It's a lot more than that. Not just they don't fight, that there's no conflict. But there is that intimacy, that loving relationship, that appreciation, that desire for the glory of each other. Well, God made humanity to share in the shalom of the Trinity. Well, friends, this is what you long for. This peace is what you long for. We get foreshadowings of the shalom in this world 
including when we gather in a worship service like this. This is a, a foretaste of that final, ultimate shalom when we share in the shalom of the Trinity. But the final, eternal, perfect shalom will not come into effect until the Prince of Peace returns to this earth. And he will then establish that perfected relationship with God and with one another in new Jerusalem. Well, today, what I want us to do is to see the longing for shalom in Psalm 120, and then see the pointer to the fulfilled promise of shalom in Psalm 122. And I pray that these psalms will deepen our longing for new Jerusalem, the new city of peace. And so that we pray for the peace that is coming in new Jerusalem. And we prepare ourselves and others for that citizenship, inviting others into the fulfillment of their deepest longings found only via the Prince of Peace. So, I will say a few more words about this section of the Psalter, the Songs of Ascent, and then three headings. First, Psalm 120, the longing of exiles for Shalom. And then secondly, look back at 121. We opened up Psalm 121 last week in our joint service with the Swahili-speaking congregation. I'll just say a few words about that. Psalm 121 in the context of 120 and 122. And then thirdly, Psalm 122, the fulfilled promise, shalom and worship. So the longing of exiles for shalom, Psalm 121 in context, and the fulfilled promise, shalom and worship. Under each, we'll see how Jesus himself lived out these psalms. So first of all, a few words about the Songs of Ascent. As I mentioned very briefly last week, these 15 psalms labeled Songs of Ascent, 120 to 134, are all short. Indeed, these 15 psalms together are significantly shorter than Psalm 119 by itself. You can read all of them in about 15 minutes and I encourage you to do so. I, list, I listened this morning to about 10 of them just driving here. They're intended to be read together. There are overlapping themes. There's a structure which is pretty obvious in the first few of Psalm 120 to 122 to go together. Psalm 123 to 125 go together. They're written in different centuries, however. Psalms 122, 124, 131, and 133 are labeled of David, so they are written in his era. Psalm 127 is labeled of Solomon, and some, most clearly 126, are written after the Israelites 
return from exile. And so that's 500 years after the time of David. But at some point after the exile, a compiler put these together, labeled them all with the same label, and intended them to be read together. That compiler may or may not have authored one of them, but nevertheless, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to organize them in this way. God gave him insight into how these are related to one another to help future readers to see the truths that much more clearly because they are put in this order together. We frequently quote 2 Timothy 3.16 in this church, all scripture is breathed out by God. And there's no problem in believing that the compiler was inspired by God, as was the author. And so, as we go through these songs of ascent in the next several months, I encourage you to read them together. You know, in the past, I've preached on Psalm 131. I've had discussions of other psalms. Every time a baby's born, I read Psalm 127. But this has been a real privilege these last few weeks to read them in context of each other. And we get wonderful insights looking at these psalms individually. And we get even deeper insights looking at them together. The songs of ascent. So let's turn to Psalm 120 again. The longing of exiles for shalom. And let me read the psalm. One more time. Picture yourself isolated, alone, in the midst of people who don't like you and hate your God. Okay? Paul knows exactly what this is like. Imagine this. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, deceitful tongue? A warrior, sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me, that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace, shalom. I am for peace, shalom. But when I speak, they are for war. So God has answered the psalmist in the past. He answered me, verse 1. But now he is in distress once again. He's in exile, a refugee, a sojourner, away from the people of God, isolated. In Meshach, in Kedar. These places are far, far away from each other. One is kind of Iran and one is sort of the South Caucasus. And so you couldn't be in both of those places at once. He seems to be saying, I'm spread out so far away from God's people. 
so far from Jerusalem, the city of peace. This is not where he belongs. He says, too long have I been here. So he longs for peace. Even with these opponents, he longs for peace. He says, I am for peace. But he's excluded. He's hated. He's warred against. And furthermore, he is surrounded by lies and deceit. He's surrounded by those who deserve God's judgment. That's what he's getting at in verses 3 and 4. It is God who will send those sharp arrows. It is God who will give the glowing coals of this tree that had really hard wood, and so the flames were the hottest from that tree. This is what they deserve, those who are opposing the God of all the earth. Well, what about us? As we read from 1 Peter 2, we also are sojourners. We are exiles in this world. We also often are spoken against as evildoers, especially during election seasons. We are to be for peace. We are to proclaim the Prince of Peace, invite people into his peace, We are, as Peter says, to keep our conduct honorable, to do good. And as the Apostle Paul says, as much as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with all. We are to work to bless the city in which we find ourselves in our exile as we are sojourners. But, despite our efforts, as Paul was relating, despite their efforts to be proclaimers of a gospel of peace, we are derided, often mocked, opposed, and in some situations, persecuted. We must be aware that the world is not our home. And so the Apostle John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must be aware that the love for the world is the result of lies and deceit. The types of lies and deceit he's talking about in verse 2. Well, what are the lies around us? Here are a handful of them. You can add those you've experienced yourself. One lie, there is no truth. Religion is private, individual. Don't impose your religion on me. There's no implications of what you believe spiritually for public policy, for voting. Or other lies. Money is the source of happiness. Possessions are the source of happiness. Sex is the source of happiness. Prestige, fame is the source of happiness. Or, people of somewhat different persuasions, going back to nature is the source of happiness. Or, reviving our city is the source of happiness. Restoring the U.S. to its founding principles is the source of happiness. Or, 
people with a somewhat different perspective. Marriage is the source of happiness. Family is the source of happiness. Children are the source of happiness. Grandchildren are the source of happiness. Most of those, not all, are good things. They can lead to some happiness. But each one can become an idol when we think of it as the way to happiness. And there are many, many who propagate such lies. Or another lie is, what is the biggest problem facing the human race? Well, 40 years ago, a lot of people would have said the possibility of nuclear war. But as the Russian president and our own president have raised the prospect of possible nuclear war, these days no one seems to worry about that very much. Instead, focusing on something that may happen 70 years from now with global warming. What is the biggest problem facing the human race? We need scripture to answer that question for us because only God can tell us what our biggest problem is. And what he tells us is the biggest problem of the human race is me. The biggest problem of the human race is what is inside each one of us. Our fallenness, our rebellion, our rejection of him. And that's what only Jesus can fix. So we need to remember that. That there are lies and deceit all around us. And it's so, so easy for us to get swayed by such lies. And to fall into habits of thinking that are consistent with one of these types of idolatry. And so John ends his first epistle by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, what about Jesus? How does Psalm 120 picture Jesus for us? Jesus, too, was an alien, a stranger, an exile, maybe more obviously in his case than in ours. He came to this earth with a task, a mission, a goal, but this earth was not his home. And remember, there are times when his weariness with this world comes out. Remember? Times when he grows weary of a lack of desire for peace. When those around him only want conflict with him. When there is great obstinacy around him. Luke 9, 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And it's interesting, talking about organizing scripture, how Luke then puts that statement, that longing of Jesus, 
to complete his sojourn on earth. Ten verses before the hinge in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 9, verse 51. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke is the progress of Jesus towards that day of his crucifixion and resurrection. Or we could think of Jesus in Gethsemane. How he longed to have that cup of suffering taken from him. Or we could go to what we read in English and French from Matthew 23. Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city, city of peace, right? It's in its name, city of peace. But it's the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, Jesus says, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? A picture of peace, right? Protection, healthy relationship. How often would I have had Jerusalem, the city of peace, become real peace? And you were not willing. You were not willing. See? Your house is left to you desolate. And so 40 years later, the city of peace was totally destroyed by a Roman siege. And then they did not leave one stone on top of another in the temple. Jesus was faithful in enduring and conquering the opponents and his internal desire to escape from the trials that were ahead of him. But he longed for shalom. And our longing rightly mirrors Jesus' longing. A longing to end the lying, the deceit, the conflict. A longing for healthy, life-giving relationships with God and with one another. That longing is right. It is good. It is God-honoring. This world is not our home. This world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God endures forever. He's promised that it's coming. It is coming. So want Psalm 120, briefly Psalm 121. Remember, the psalmist lifts up his eyes to the hills. He sees the potential of threats of marauding bands to come over, armies coming over and attacking him. He asks, where does my help come from? What protection can I have? from the absence of shalom, from war. It can only come from God, he says. He is my keeper, my protector. And he speaks that individually, right? And that was our focus last week, how he is the protector of each one of us. Wherever we go, whatever happens to us, he will keep you from all evil. 
says the psalmist. But remember, even in Psalm 121, where the focus is the individual, the implication is that there is this protection for all of God's people. Remember, after he says, your keeper, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. Or he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps what? He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It is because you are part of God's people that you have that individual protection from the Lord. The individual protection is part of God's relationship to his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And so Psalm 121 is pointing us in this direction of shalom with one another, even as it primarily focuses on the shalom that is ours in the midst of evil as God watches over us individually. And then it closes, remember, he will keep or protect your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's a word particularly for exiles, isn't it? For sojourners. You've gone out. And he's going to bring you back. You're going to go in to the city of peace and to Jerusalem. He will grant you that peace. Amidst all the conflict that you're experiencing now, he's watching over it, he's keeping, he's protecting you. He's going to bring you back. Okay, so Psalm 120, the longing for peace while in exile. Psalm 121, then we might think of as God's protection during your exile. And then Psalm 122, the fulfilled promise, shalom and worship. So now, in that context, the first verse of Psalm 122 just bursts out at us. You see that? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, our feet. And this is, a, this is an amazing statement. The guy's overwhelmed. He's been in exile, right? And now he's amazed. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Finally, I'm with God's people again. And this is a city of peace. Think of verse 1 again. Think of the difference between what he says and this statement. I was glad to go worship God in his house. What's the difference? I was glad to go worship God in his house. The difference with, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You hear the difference? It's a really important difference. It's different from saying, I as an individual am going to go to church this morning and I'm going to open my mouth, I'm going to sing, I'm going to worship God. That's really different from saying, you know, Taylor invited me to come and worship together, desiring God, community, church amongst God's people. We are here together to worship 
God. And that's part of the longing for peace. That longing to be part of God's people. Together, with one heart, with one voice, as Paul says, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the only place of peace is in the true Jerusalem, the church, New Jerusalem, after Jesus returns. And so that then leads into verse 3. Jerusalem, city of peace again, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Okay, the word tribes is important here. He doesn't only say... Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which Israel goes up to give thanks to the name of the Lord or to give praise in other translations to the name of the Lord. The tribes are different. Remember there's that curious incident that we read of in the early books in the Old Testament where there's a battle, and it's between some of the tribes, right? And at the fords, I believe it's the fords of the Jordan, they start saying, hey, say the word Sibboleth. And these people have been separated enough from each other that some of them pronounce it funny, and they say Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. And then they would slaughter the guys who couldn't say it right, because that showed that they were from a different tribe. There's conflict amongst these tribes. And of course, after, after Solomon's death, you have the northern kingdom separate from the southern kingdom. Two tribes against ten. And battle between them. So there's not an inherent unity amongst the tribes. But here in this picture of peace, the tribes are brought Together, The tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel in the Old Covenant, all the males were supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. All of them, from every tribe. To celebrate certain feasts. And so, under the New Covenant, this is all lived out. We have the same unity and diversity, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have peace with one another in Christ Jesus. But there's still that note of exclusion. Some are excluded. We see that in the pictures of New Jerusalem that we find in Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city, New Jerusalem, by the gates. Outside, not in the city, 
are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But those who are inside will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. So there's an exclusion that happens. And Jesus emphasizes this exclusion again and again and again. We see this in verse 5 of Psalm 122. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Jesus is the descendant of David who exercises this judgment, who keeps out from New Jerusalem those who don't belong in it. Let me just read the last four verses, and we're going to come back to that idea. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. That time is coming. Followers of the Lord God have been praying for such peace for millennia, and God will fulfill it. There will be peace, true prosperity amongst brothers, true fulfillment of what the temple and the tabernacle signified, the dwelling of God in the midst of his people all united together. So now let's look at Jesus in Psalm 122, particularly as the judge. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Acts 10.42, Peter, speaking to the household of Cornelius. He, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. John 5.22, Jesus speaking. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or Evil. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, we preached on this not long ago, verses 6 to 10. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Okay, that's Psalm 120, right? And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. That's Psalm 121 and Psalm 122. When, when is that going to happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, judgment 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Jesus comes, and that is it. The day of salvation is over, which is why we have the urgency of proclamation today. No one is beyond the pale. We proclaim, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But that day comes, and there's no more opportunity. But his people have that peace. He is glorified in his saints. He's marveled at amongst his people the unity of all those who have believed from every tribe and tongue and nation. We will see him face to face. His name will be written on our foreheads. And that, that is shalom. Well, friends, how do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem today? How do we pray for security within her towers? The way we do it is to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, do not delay. Lord Jesus, fulfill your promise. Lord Jesus, come as that son of David sent to restore all things, to make us into the people of God, so that humanity might become what you always intended humanity to be, delighting in you, seeing you, living out, proclaiming, shining forth with your glory. Yes, pray for that final judgment when you are under oppression, under persecution. By all means, pray, Lord God, don't let that sin go unpunished. Justice requires that sin to be punished. Pray, oh Father, Let these falsehoods be shown for what they are as falsehoods. Let the deceit end. And pray, O Father, shine your light into the hearts of these deceivers so that they, like the Apostle Paul, might move from persecutor to proclaimer. O Father, use even me to show your love, to proclaim your gospel, to show your truth, so that even this, my my enemy, might become a recipient of your shalom. And I might be closer in the new heavens and the new earth to this, my former enemy, than I am today with my dearest loved one. That's what we long for. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is shalom. Peace because of the past and future work of Jesus.
the Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you offer us peace. Oh, Father, don't let anyone leave today without submitting to the Prince of Peace, acknowledging sin, and turning to you so that believing in the Lord Jesus, we all might be saved and be your people and you be our God. Father, grant us that we, your people, might live out this peace and show it to those around us. And may we be proclaimers of your peace. And you bring many, many to saving faith through our proclamation and witness. We exalt Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and ask you, show us the grievous ways in us that keep us from rightly exalting him. Cleanse us so that we might truly live out what it means to be your people with you as our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.